empower black men to live extraordinary lives. Shadow the stereotype. Power black men. Power black men. Shadow the stereotype. Power black men to live extraordinary lives. Shadow the stereotype. Shadow the stereotype. Power black men to live extraordinary lives. Welcome to Shatter the Stereotypes, where the intention is to empower black men to live extraordinary lives. This show is based on the simple idea that every black man is capable of creating inner peace, dynamic health, great relationships, and financial abundance. Therefore, we provide insights and strategies to educate, motivate, and inspire black men to reach their full potential and create the life of their dreams. So if you're ready for some high-octane motivation and inspiration that supports and empowers you to live the life you were born to live, Get ready to shatter the stereotypes so you can build a life that lights you up and positively impacts the world. So now, let's shatter the stereotypes with your host, Coach Michael Taylor. Hello and welcome to Shatter the Stereotypes, where our intention is to empower black men to live extraordinary lives. You see, there's never been a shortage of black male role models. There's only been a lack of exposure of those role models. So the intention here is to showcase and highlight black men who are doing amazing things in the world. And joining me tonight is a guy who is doing just that. His name is Dr. Antonio Webb, and he's a spine surgeon. He's an Iraq combat vet, and he's also a keynote speaker. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Webb to the show. Dr. Webb, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Michael? Doing very, very well. Again, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to chat with us. Uh, as mentioned, you are definitely shattering the stereotypes, so it's my honor and privilege to have you on the ship. So we're going to talk a little bit about your background, what you do, and all that. But before we do, let's start off with a few icebreaker questions. So first of all, tell us where you're from and just a little bit about growing up. Yeah, so I'm originally from Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I joined the military at uh, age 17 and uh, been in San Antonio kind of in and out besides some couple, a few years for training for the last 19 years. But uh, growing up in Shreveport was definitely a interesting kind of uh, childhood. Um, you know, Shreveport is one of, was at that time was ranked the uh, eighth most dangerous uh, city in the uh, U.S. Uh, so it was a lot of drugs, a lot of violence, a lot of uh, crime, poverty, and um, I, I saw all of that kind of growing up, and despite all of that, um, I went to a medical magnet program, and that's what introduced me to the uh, field of medicine, and ever since that program, you know, I, I've um, made it a little promise to myself that I would stay out of trouble and uh, reach my goals. Well, that's what I mean by shattering the stereotypes, man. So extremely proud of the journey that you're on and, and what you're doing. So next, I'd like you to name a woman who's inspired you to be who you are. Uh, I would probably say Dr. Claudia Thomas. Uh, she was the first female orthopedic surgeon and I actually was able to uh, had opportunity to meet her a few years ago. She, you know, broke a lot of barriers and uh, kind of paved the way for people like myself to uh, do what I do. So uh, I give credit to her and kind of look up to her. Nice. 
So name a man that you look up to and admire. I would probably say my father. My father raised my siblings and I, uh, growing up as a single father for most of our lives. And um, he is kind of my kind of role model and uh, someone who uh, I look up to this day, so. Now, was he a doctor also? No, I, I'm, I'm the only medical doctor in my family. Okay. Um, yeah, no other doctors, medical nice. doctors. So if you were gonna be trapped on an island and you can only take one book, which book would you take with you? Wow. Uh, I would hate to say a medical book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the books that I, I read when I was uh, younger was, it was, it's called The Pact. It's about three doctors, black doctors who grew up in New Jersey and, you know, had a similar kind of uh, upbringing as to my upbringing and they all became doctors. So that book really encouraged me when I was going through the years and, you know, just uh, feeling kind of uh, a little self-defeated and um, up against all these barriers, trying to get into med school. You know, it took me three years to get into me medical school. I was reject rejected every single year. So, you know, just reading that book really inspired me when I was uh, going through the years. So, I, and I, I read it to, um, to get a sense of uh, some inspiration and um, even you know during these times. So it's really an inspiring book. Now, do you like movies? I do. Name a movie that you like and tell me why you like it. Oh man, a movie. <laughs> uh, I like action movies, uh, movies that uh, like sit you on the, you're on the edge of the seat the whole time. Uh, one that I, uh, so maybe about a year ago, it was called um, do, do Not Breathe. I, I think it's called Do Not Breathe. It's about this, uh, these kids who broke into this gentleman's house and uh, he was blind. And the whole premise is that um, if you breathe, that he would hear you. It, that, was, that was a really good movie. Huh? That's uh, probably one of the best ones I've seen in a while. Really intense, too. I, I saw that. I'm a, I'm a big movie buff, so I always ask my interviewees that. But uh, yeah, I remember that movie. It was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, well, what's your favorite movie lately? The original Star Wars. Oh, okay. In, in 1977, I'm 17 years old, the year Star Wars came out, I saw that movie 21 times in the theater <laughs> the, sum, the summer of 1977. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't stop watching it. And it's, yeah. it's, it's amazing how 25 or so years later, I figured out what the attraction was. And yeah. the attraction was, there's a guy named Joseph Campbell who came up with what he called the mono myth, meaning mm -hmm. that there's what's called the hero's journey. And every movie has this theme called the hero's journey in it. And I didn't recognize it at the time, but I really related to the, the main character, Luke Skywalker in that mm -hmm. movie because he had to go through you know, a lot of adversity in his life because he wanted to be a fighter pilot or whatever. And so it's, a, it's actually a very deep spiritual movie if you, if you look at it with, with those types of eyes. So, and I love the whole concept of the force and may the force be with you. So that's yeah. my, my, my all time favorite. Yeah, I never really got into Star Wars. I, I, I was uh, actually gonna think about it a couple months ago. Maybe I should try to start from the beginning, but that would probably take me a while to catch up. Yeah. The very, if you watch just the very first one, it really lays the foundation. It's just, it's just a powerful film. I just absolutely love it. Now, there are some people who are 
pessimistic about the future. And there are others like myself who actually are pretty optimistic about the future. So where do you fall on that spectrum between optimism and pessimism for the future in general? Well, I, I would probably say that I, I'm a very optimistic person. Um, I, I would probably fall on the side of optimism. Uh, so yeah, for, for the future, especially, it, it's kind of hard to uh, be very optimistic at this with, with everything going on these day and times. But uh, I, I would probably say um, the optimism side. Nice. So now I'd like you to introduce Dr. Antonio Webb, the professional. So tell the audience what you do. Yeah, so I am a orthopedic spine surgeon. So um, basically I help patients who have back and neck pain. I also do some general orthopedics. So uh, patients who have knee pain, arthritis in their hip, ankles, uh, uh, break a bone or come into the hospital who, who breaks their hip. Uh, I'm the person that uh, you see and uh, take care of your, your, your musculoskeletal injuries. Nice. So I want to go back a little bit. Um, cause again, thinking about you as a spine surgeon just inspires the heck out of me. I just got to be honest. So I want to go back to high school. Now, what type of kid were you in high school? I was uh, pretty quiet, but I, I was also pretty uh, curious and, uh, and uh, inquisitive. Um, I, I was always a straight A student kind of growing up and, uh, you know, despite everything that was going on and my childhood and family, I still did pretty well in school. So in high school, quiet kid that was uh, probably the nerd out of the bunch, out of uh, most of my friends. So did you did you enjoy going to school or was it something you enjoyed or? No. Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. It, it until it got to a point where I became bored with the uh, schoolwork and it the end of my senior year, I was actually contemplating kind of dropping out of school just because um, I, I was kept asking myself, like, why am I going to school or why am I being forced to go to school when, um, you know, not, everything is boring to me. Uh, it just, just didn't make any sense to me. So I, my plan was to uh, drop out of school and start working, but I'm, I'm glad I, I uh, stuck through with it and uh, stayed in school. But uh, I, I did enjoy school, mostly the, the sciences, which uh, kind of uh, carried over into medicine. So out of curiosity, any of your friends from high school also become doctors? Yeah, actually, my, my best friend, uh, we, since middle school, we've been friends, and then uh, we, we just kind of stuck together and um, kept our head, heads in the books, tried to stay out of trouble, and he is a cardiac, cardiac uh, anesthesiologist who um, graduated medical school and went through the process a few years ahead of me. And, and um, yeah, we're, we're both doctors now. Nice. That's awesome. So, so how did your friends and family react when you finally became that doctor? What was the reaction? You know, it, a lot of people don't really understand the process. Um, you know, even when I was in college, my, my family probably thought I was a doctor at that time because I <laughs> tell them that I was going to go to medical school. But most people don't really understand it. You know, it takes the path that it takes to uh, get to this point. It's uh, about 15 years of training, including college. So it's four years of college, four years of medical school, five years of surgery training, and then a, um, one year of fellowship. So um, throughout that whole process, a lot of people really don't understand. And, you know, they may call you doctor, um, 
while you're in college or you know when I was uh, even in some pre-med courses I was getting called doctor but uh, yeah it, it's definitely a good feeling especially I'm the first person in my family to uh, hold a medical doctorate degree and uh, that's something that hopefully I can change and uh, encourage more people and especially black males to uh, go into the field of medicine not, not only in my family but other families as well. So when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? It was in high school. Actually, there was a medical magnet program that I went to that uh, we went about, about half a day. And in addition to our normal curriculum at my uh, primary high school, we went to a got bus to another high school and they had different career options. And uh, we, we took some anatomy courses and different uh, courses in the healthcare field. And uh, that, that's when I first learned about becoming a doctor. And, and up until that point, I had never saw a black doctor or knew a black doctor, uh, never had met one, but I, I knew there was an opportunity there. And that was a way for me to get out of Shreveport and to uh, go to school and join the military. And, and that's exactly what I did. So, so what, was, what was college like for you? College for me was a little disjointed. I really didn't have a, a, a true college experience. I was active duty in the Air Force so when I was working uh, full-time um, active duty Air Force, my job was a medic and a medical technician. So I worked in the ICU at our military base and I went to school in the uh, daytime. Uh, so I would work 12 hour shift and then get off in the morning and go to class. Then I took uh, internet courses, weekend courses. Uh, when I worked the day shift, I would go to school at nighttime. So it took me seven years to get my undergraduate degree with uh, four different colleges because I was just taking classes wherever I could and when, whenever I could. And uh, because of my military obligations, kept having to drop classes. Um, I got deployed and went to Iraq in 2005. So I had to miss a semester or two, but um, it, it was a really disjointed experience. Wow, but, but you hung in there, man. That's, that's still, again, remarkable. Now, we've all seen movies about war. So I'm just, I'm just curious. How close was your actual experience of being in a war to what we might see on TV or movies? I mean, I can't even imagine what that money, what, what that was like. Yeah, um, my experience, this is 2005, so kind of when the uh, Marines kind of first invaded Fallujah, and that was actually in late 2004, but uh, it was pretty dangerous when we were there. We, we got shot at probably three or four times per day, and I was at a place called Mortarville. They called it Mortarville because uh, the mortars that they shot at us, uh, the enemy, which weren't too far away. And uh, my job was a medic, so I took care of all the uh, wounded soldiers and also the Iraqi insurgents who uh, would shoot our soldiers and we would still have to take care of them. But movies, um, for the most part, are pretty uh, somewhat realistic. Um, you know, lots of... Um, chaos, um, especially as a medic, there's um, see a lot of uh, bad injuries and um, yeah, it was a pretty dangerous time. Wow. Now, speaking of movies, have you ever seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge? No, I haven't. It's an amazing true story about a guy that was in the, uh, I think he was in the army maybe, but he would not use a weapon. Mm. He wouldn't, he, it was against his religion to use a, a, a a weapon, but he wanted to be a medical doctor, right? So he goes to the military. And of course, all of the people there at the military, you know, they called them chickens and they made fun of him or whatever. 
But this guy actually saved some 60-something lives um, in a war with no gun. They were trapped on this thing called Hacksaw Ridge, and they had this net that they had to climb up the side of this wall, mm -hmm. and they were lowering down the injured people, and he was dragging soldiers from the war field down to this edge so they could lower them down to get medical attention. It's a powerful, powerful movie that I'm sure you would really, really appreciate. And I, I usually don't like war films, yeah. but this one, number one, being that it was based on a true story, and then at the end when they show the actual guy, you listen to him talk about, you know, how his faith in God, you know, uh, carried him through and how he could not leave, you know, his, his fellow soldiers out on the field, even though everybody else was leaving. And it's, it's a really amazing film called Hacksaw Ridge, uh, based okay. on a true story. I looked that up. Yeah, it's really good. So let's talk about your book, Overcoming the Odds. And let's see, I think I have, let's see. Yeah, there we go. Overcoming the Odds, From War on the Streets in Louisiana to War on Terrorism in Iraq, How I Successfully Overcame the Odds. So what was your intention for writing the book? So my intention was to, uh, have a resource for young kids that look like me, young black male or minority who looks like me that can, that could pick up a copy of my book or use it as a resource, a guide, you know, some inspiration to uh, essentially just let kids know, like, if I can go through everything that I went through and still reach my goals, you know, they can also. So that was my inspiration for writing it. How, how difficult was it for you to write it? Uh, it, it took some time. It, you know, I self-published my book, so I didn't want to go the traditional publisher route. But uh, yeah, it definitely t took a long time to uh, get it all together. And but you know, it's, it's not impossible. Yeah. Well, as a self-published author myself, I, I I know the feeling. <laughs> Trust mm -hmm. me. Um, and the, the the fulfillment of actually doing it on your own, though, is something that you can't put a price on. I remember yep. when I wrote my first book, and just being able to say I did it and to, to have it impact people's lives. I mean, it, it made it all worth it. As a matter of yeah. fact, when back in 95, when I wrote it, um, this was really before the internet and everything. So you had to actually submit uh, query letters to publishers and mm -hmm. it was a long drawn out process. And I actually sent query letters to 60 different publishers. Wow. And every one of them were rejected. Yeah. The very last one, the very number six, as a matter of fact, I still have a copy of it. The very <laughs> last one, the lady, the editor says, look, we're really interested in your book. Please give me a call. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited. Yes, I might get my book published. And at the time I was broke. I was so broke, I couldn't pay attention. I could have <laughs> really, I could have really used a little advance, right? Yeah. So I talked to this lady on the phone and she says, look, Michael, I loved your book but there was a small problem and happened to be a white lady. She says, look, please don't take this the wrong way. But our research shows that black men don't buy books like this. Mm. Now she wasn't being racist, you know, said so that was just, you know, from a business perspective, I appreciated her being honest. And she said this, she says, look, if you're willing to change the title and make a few changes in the book, she says, I'd love to publish this book. She said, it's a really good book. And there was a part of me, number one, needed the money, <laughs> needed the money yeah. really badly. 
But there was a part of me that said, you know, I can't do that. I mean, that would be like asking a parent to change his child's name, right? I was like, I'm sorry, I, I, I just can't do it. And um, after that conversation, I said, you know what? I'm gonna figure out how to do this on my own. So I actually got a job, a part-time job at a bookstore and I learned the publishing industry and mm -hmm. uh, start, started my own publishing company as a result of that, that yeah, of that rejection, so. That's a, uh, definitely a success story. You know, that, that's the reason why I didn't, didn't want to go to the traditional publishing route, you know, in terms of title and content and things like that. I, I want everything to be authentic and kind of kind of my voice, so, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm wondering, do you have any feel-good stories of someone who may have read your book and it, it impacted their life? Uh, I get emails and uh, messages from people from all over the world, from um, China, from Canada to Africa, um, you know, Taiwan, Australia, kind of from all over the world, just from people, not only people that are going in, that are interested in going into medicine, but people that have no affiliations with medicine at all. And um, I, I wrote it so that a kid can, a young black male can pick up my book and um, kind of use it as a resource and really just uh, refer back to it, you know, when times get hard or when they, you know, have a question about something that, uh, that or would like to go in a similar path as mine, so. Well, your, your title sort of answers this question, but what's the biggest takeaway you want people to receive after they read the book? The biggest takeaway would be that, um, you know, Failure, you should expect failure. It, every, like you, you spoke about, you know, getting those rejections. At each point in my life, you know, all the failures that I have been through and, you know, I've failed a lot. I've failed tests. I've struggled with standardized test taking. I got rejected from, I don't know, 100 plus medical schools. So it was three years of applying. Um, I, I think it's a lot of people, they try to um, run away from failure, you know, you, you really have to accept failure and, and ask yourself, like, what can I take away from this opportunity, this situation to better myself in the future? I think uh, failure, you know, it's one of those things that we should expect. And my medical school instructor kind of broke it down uh, really well when he said that failure is not, the, failure is not in the falling down, it's in a failure to get back up and try again. So uh, that's, you know, how successful people be successful. They, they sit there and they analyze why did I fail or why did this company fail or, you know, why did I struggle on this exam for students out there? But that's exactly what I do and try to live by. Yeah. Now, my, my mentor is a guy named Dr. Wayne Dyer. And unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but he taught me a very valuable lesson. And he said this. He said, there's really no such thing as failure. There is only the non-attainment of a desired result. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that because we, we set our sights on a result. And if we don't achieve that result, then we think we failed. Yeah. But the truth is we just didn't attain the result that we wanted. Yeah. Too many times people, when they don't attain that result, they internalize that they're a failure. And that's what causes people to withdraw and to give up because they think internally, I'm a failure. So if you can reframe how you think, and if you see failure as simply the non-attainment of a desired result, it helps you move through 
failures a lot easier. Something that I, I really love that lesson because as I said, I had 60 rejection letters and every time I opened one, I just, my heart would just kind of sink. Oh, not another one. Oh, not mm -hmm. another one. But I held on to that teaching of Wayne Dyer. I said, well, I didn't get the result that I wanted, but let me just keep trying. Let me just keep trying. Let me just keep trying. And eventually here I am now eight books later in my own publishing company. And I took it to heart what he was saying. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I'm a big believer in everything that happens for a reason. I mean, you may not know it at that time, but uh, there's a reason behind, you know, whatever kind of happens in life. And, um, you know, I always tell students when I give talks to go on to different colleges or different schools that, you know, if it would took me 10 years to get into med school, I, I would have applied every single year because that's how bad I wanted it. And if you want something that bad, um, you'll eventually get it. You just have to keep trying and keep, you know, keep picking away at it. And, you know, eventually, you know, you'll, you'll succeed. So. Yeah. I love what motivational speaker Les Brown says, he says, you gotta be hungry. He says, yep. you can't be hungry. You can't just be hungry. <laughs> that's not going to get, you gotta be hungry. <laughs> yep. And that, that's really true. You've got to have that passion and you've got to be hungry for whatever it is that you really want. So let's shift gears a little bit now. And my most recent book is titled the cure for onlyness, which addresses the feeling of onlyness that we as black men sometimes experience when we are in environments without any other people of color. So I'm sure you've had that experience mm -hmm. lots of times. So first of all, how do you deal with that feeling, that experience of being the only person of color in environments? Yeah, that's actually a good question. You know, in, in medicine, especially these days in terms of black males and the field of medicine, there's actually a study that just came out or it came out a few years ago, 2015, I believe. It showed that they were more black males in medical school in the 19, in 1970 than there were <clears throat> when this uh, study came out. And I believe this was 2015, which, you know, just uh, speaks to the um, inequities and the um, uh, inequalities in, in medicine and the discrepancies between the different races within medicine. So, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a struggle. And then, you know, people kind of talk about, um, I just can't think of the name of it right now. There's a, can, can, there's a name for the uh, phenomenon where uh, you just don't feel like you uh, belong in a certain situation. And uh, the, the name kind of escapes me right now, but yeah, I mean, you, you, ha you have these feelings like all the time and you know, you feelings like uh, you're, you're not equal to your peers, but um, it's, uh, it's, I always look at people that who, who have went through this process before me and use them as an inspiration. So, you know, if they can do it and go through this kind of rigorous training, you know, I, I can also. But in or orthopedics, less than one point, uh, I think it's less than 2% of the orthopedic surgeons in the U.S. are black males, and even less than that for a spine surgeon. So it's, uh, it's definitely a need for, you know, more minorities and black males to uh, go into the field of medicine. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show. Um, to give you some exposure for what, what's possible, um, yep. which is really amazing. Um, now, on that same note, you know, with all of the current racial tensions, obviously, that we're going through as a country right now, 
how are you holding up as a black man with all this stuff that's going around the George Floyd and, and Black Lives Matter? How, how are you handling that? Do you, do you have a support system in which, you know, you can maybe talk about how you're feeling about all this or, or how do you handle it? Yeah, you know, it, it's definitely a lot to handle and a, a lot to uh, kind of take in. You know, every time you turn on the news, there's some report of something else kind of happening or some type of uh, police brutality. But for me, I do have a support system. I, you know, there's a group of black male doctors that uh, I'm a part of and we have conversations about, you know, things that are going on in the world and you know I have uh, some other friends outside of that group as well that we just have conversations about it but it, it's uh, yeah definitely something that's really tiring to uh, turn on the news and every time we turn around there's there's something else that's you know happening but I'm kind of been battling how do I have these conversations with my sons uh, I have a nine-year-old and also a one-year-old so how do I have these conversations? And um, that's been the most challenging thing for me, you know, just what do I say to them? And, you know, what kind of advice can I give to them in terms of is something for like that to um, happen to them or uh, to one of their friends? So that's been the most challenging things for me. Yeah, and you know, that was the whole reason I started to shatter the stereotypes movement to give black men an opportunity to really jump into and dive deep into how we feel about all the challenges and not be afraid to talk about maybe the fear that we might be feeling, the sadness that we might be feeling as we, as we deal with all this. Because I believe that if we don't have resources to address some of those suppressed and repressed emotions, then it's going to come out in, in uh, inappropriate ways, let's just put it that way, because we keep suppressing and repressing that feeling of sadness or anger or whatever, it's got to show up somehow. That's just how the human body works, I believe. So having an outlet, having a resource where we can talk about honestly, openly, the feelings that we have, it, it's very therapeutic, uh, very healing, and is definitely needed. And I know it makes a lot of men uncomfortable, especially black men, to talk about emotions and feelings. But it is the key to our, our happiness uh, as human beings, just being in touch with and connected to our emotions. So yeah, I definitely agree. You know, having those, those issues or just uh, talking about things that are in your chest, it's, uh, you know, especially men, we we're, have this kind of macho kind of, you know, uh, mentality or appearance or try to come off as, you know, being hard, hard or whatever. But, it's one of those things that is not talked about enough, especially mental health issues kind of in the uh, African-American community. Hopefully, you know, uh, some of the groups that I'm a part of and we're trying to bring more awareness to kind of uh, mental health issues and depression and anxiety and those things like Charlemagne kind of put out his book about that. But uh, it's definitely something that more kind of men need to talk about. Uh, and it's okay to talk to someone or have a counselor or, you know, someone that you go to talk to. And those things are extremely important. You know, those things get bottled up. You know, that's when kind of bad things can happen. Um, but um, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. And my, my area of expertise, if you will, is actually the changing roles of manhood and masculinity in society. Mm -hmm. And so I've been speaking and writing about men's issues for more than 25 years. And 
back in 1995 when I wrote my first book, I remember being on a radio show and I was talking about the importance of healing from childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, several men calling in and really just attacking me and criticizing me for talking about emotions and wow. talking about how feelings were for women. And as men, we're supposed to man up and tough it out. Well, see, that's what's driving a lot of our negative behaviors. Yes. And so one thing that I've done with my last four books targeted specifically to black men is to say, hey, look guys, the three most difficult words for any of us to say is I need help. Yes. But there is absolutely no shame in a man saying, I need help. It is not a sign of weakness. As a matter of fact, it is the greatest show of strength a man can show. And so creating spaces that safe enough for men to share and speak that openly and vulnerably is I believe the key to resolving a lot of issues in our community. Because as black men, we are constantly inundated with so much negativity, so much trauma just from watching television. And that's why I minimize the amount of TV I watch. But we have to have outlets in which we can openly discuss emotional, psychological issues. And that's what um, Shatter the Stereotypes is all about. It's about men being willing to say, you know what? It's okay to say I need to go to therapy. There's no shame in that. It's okay for me to say I'm hurting. There's no shame in that. And so these conversations need to be had. And, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Charlemagne the God because he's talked specifically about his own challenges which on his platform is great to engage black men in that conversation. But what I try to do is take men a little deeper. And I've had several therapists on the show, psychologists, coaches, that we really dive deep into things like sexual abuse and and Mm -hmm. emotional trauma, because those things are impacting our lives um, much more frequently than than we want to admit. And we have to be willing to talk about and share and speak openly about those. So with that being said, um, you're involved with the black men in white coats, aren't you? Yeah, I I was the uh, keynote speaker this year. Yeah, so so tell us a little bit about that organization. Yeah, so the Black Men in White Coats is a organization uh, that was founded by a a physician, uh, Dr. I won't mispronounce his last name, Dr. O, but he founded this uh, organization to try to increase the amount of um, African-Americans and minorities that go into the field of medicine. So there's seminars and events that uh, occur kind of in various cities kind of all over the U.S. Um, uh, but it, it's definitely a much needed um, program that I'm glad that I was able to uh, speak at this year. Now, are they, are they reaching out to like high schools and colleges to try to influence more, you know, black males to, to get into uh, being doctors? Yeah, there's several different programs. Uh, there's a couple of different pipeline programs as well. But I think at this event, there were maybe 3,000 people that were uh, registered. I'm not sure how many people were there. Probably a little bit less than that. But um, yeah, all the kind of local high schools, middle schools, uh, that's, uh, we try to get, get them involved. Nice. Now, now, now you're saying you were the keynote speaker, yep. but are you also on the board or anything with the organization or are you just a speaker? Yeah, I was just a keynote speaker this year. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So let's jump into Dr. Webb's specialty, which is spines. So I have to share my story first. 
So <laughs> I've dealt with lower back pain the majority of my life. I've seen several doctors and I went to this one doctor and he prescribed, uh, I believe it was cortisone injections mm. uh, to alleviate some pain that I had. Mm. And I was against it, but I needed to alleviate the pain. So I said, what the hell, what have I got to lose? Well, the injections did absolutely nothing. <laughs> the pain was still there and I work in retail and so I'm on my feet, you know, 12 hours a day. And I ran across this guy who was a customer. And I don't remember how we got on the conversation, but I was telling him about my flat feet. Yeah. He was a podiatrist. And he said, you know, your flat feet could be contributing to your lower back pain. I said, no, I didn't know that. So I went to see the guy and he suggested that I try some inserts for my shoes to put some arches, I guess, in my feet. Mm -hmm. And you know, 60% of my back pain went away. Yeah. Just because mm -hmm. the, of the flat feet. So tell us a little bit about the mechanics of what's that about? Yeah, so uh, we see a lot of patients that uh, come in with uh, problems with their knees or their hips, or just like you described with your feet. I actually saw a lady in clinic just last week who she had a fracture in her femur, which means she broke her femur. She fell and had it fixed uh, with some, you know, metal plate uh, and screws. And then she, she, so she's about a little less than a year out from her injury and her surgery. But when I saw her in clinic, she was complaining of uh, her leg was fine, but she was complaining of back pain. And um, I noticed that her foot was about a centimeter short on that surgical side. So something maybe with surgery, the, the bone uh, healed in a uh, shortened position, which is, which is a uh, pretty um, common, well, not common, but it does happen after surgery if you don't align the bone kind of uh, really correctly in surgery. But um, so I prescribed her a um, insert for her shoe as well about, you know, to help her with that, um, it's called a leg length discrepancy that she has. So and I, as I imagine, I'm going to see you back here in a, a few months, and um, I, would I would hope that, that uh, her, her back pain kind of improves with that. But, you know, any part of your body that uh, is compensating either kind of um, your ankle or your hip or your knee, you know, it, it can cause um, other problems in your body. Now, I, I saw, I think it was on your LinkedIn profile maybe, where you mentioned that surgery should always be the last resort yeah. uh, for back pain. And of course, you know, we, we have this perception, you know, that all doctors just want to cut you open and, 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 you know, just make the money, right? And I'm, I'm terrified of anybody touching my back with a knife. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, tell us a little bit about your philosophy in terms of, using that approach, like surgery being the last resort? Yeah, well, especially for patients who have uh, back pain. You know, if you go to a surgeon who recommends either surgery the first time they meet you or they recommend surgery without exhausting kind of, kind of the conservative approach, uh, I'd be a little bit cautious about that. A lot of back pain, depending, you know, there's a lot of different causes of back pain, but the majority of them can get better with just some conservative treatment and uh, some activity modifications. For me, I'm a very conservative uh, 
surgeon. You know, I, I love to operate. That's probably one of my favorite things to do. But, uh, you know, I would, you know, I, I, I treat patients like my family member. You know, I ask myself, what would I recommend to my dad or to my brother or my sister? You know, and it, if it's not some type of big surgery, you know, I, I, to, to them, I wouldn't recommend it to a patient. So um, out of 10 patients that come to see me, probably eight to uh, nine of those are not going to surgery. So that's just my kind of approach and kind of my training. So as a, as a spine specialist, what are your thoughts about chiropractic? That's a good question. Um, you know, throughout my training, we, when we send patients for that conservative uh, therapy and that, that um, those uh, treatments, either before surgery or after surgery, it's kind of reflex to send them to physical therapy. So we don't get much exposure to the field of chiropractic medicine uh, field. So over the last year or so, I actually put out a video on YouTube that uh, about my thoughts on chiropractors and whether one should see a chiropractor or go see a physical therapist or whatever other type of provider. And that video <laughs> went viral and I got messages from chiropractors all over the world um, who probably, I don't know, hundred or so emails from people that were um, messaging me about the, uh, the video. But for me, you know, I always tell patients, they come in and I say they've been going to a chiropractor and if it's working, you know, continue doing that. Um, if it's not, try something else. So uh, I'm actually giving a lecture tomorrow or Thursday night to a, a chiropractic school a group of about 250 uh, attendees um, on this Thursday. We're just going to be discussing surgical cases and going over some, uh, some medical kind of jargon and uh, trying to increase the collaboration between the two specialties. Now, I read an interesting article about something called the Da Vinci Robotic Assisted Surgery. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently they're using robots guided with doctors doing surgery with these robots. Are you familiar with that technique and do you use that? Yeah, we, we don't use the Da Vinci. Da Vinci is something used by general surgeons and uh, urologists. Uh, we do use uh, robots in spine surgery though. They're, couple different ro robots on the, the market. We also um, use, uh, and I'm trained in computer navigated surgery, basically just looking at a computer um, and then, you know, placing instrumentation or helping us as surgeons perform our surgeries more uh, precisely and more accurately. But yeah, we, we use robots all the time in spinal surgery. See, now that to me is fascinating. <laughs> that is absolutely fascinating. So when you're doing surgery, you're looking at through a screen how how i mean how does that work like you got goggles on and you're it's guiding you through yeah they do have a uh, something that's coming out i think it just got fda approval it's like augmented reality where you're looking kind of in this like virtual reality uh, goggles and you can see the um, the the spine kind of just looking up like this instead of looking down in surgery uh, so that just got FDA approved uh, for w one company, but uh, for the robots, essentially, you know, when you're doing spine surgery, you know, you have to dissect all the muscles out and replace uh, screws and hardware, or we uh, do a decompression when there is compression of a nerve or the spinal cord. Well, the robot 
helps us to uh, place our hardware, the uh, screws. So uh, we can uh, plan where we want to put the screws, um, where we want to do what's called an osteotomy, which is uh, breaking the bone. We try to realign it. Uh, and we can plan all this before surgery. So the day of surgery, that robot has a robotic arm. I could just tell it to, hey, go to the left side of L2, which is the lumbar, the second lumbar vertebrae, and it will just go where we need to put our screw in. Otherwise, you know, historically, you're using um, x-ray, lots of x-ray. So it reduces radiation in surgery to not only the patient, but the surgeon and the uh, medical staff. So reduces x-ray, it helps with uh, precision and accuracy because the pedicle or the trajectory, the target that we have to put the screws in, some it's within millimeters of the spinal cord. So if you're off by a few millimeters, either up, down, left, right, anterior, posterior, um, you know, you can seriously damage a patient or you can paralyze a patient, if, especially if you're doing cervical surgery. So um, it's really high risk surgery that, um, you know, robotics has definitely changed the, um, the, the course of um, how we perform surgery as spine surgeons. So is that obviously something that you have to constantly update uh, in your industry, learning new robotics, new, that's something that I'm sure you, you're constantly seeing new things? Yeah, every, every, every day there's something new in the market that's, uh, you know, that's coming out. But, um, you know, there's definitely companies are coming up with better ways to take care of patients in a more efficient and, uh, cost, you know, cost uh, savings manner. So. And I guess I would assume with the advent of AI and, and, and combining with robotics, it's no telling where that's going to go. Uh, the, yeah. the, op the optimist in me sees this amazing technology and how it's actually improving humanity. Um, yeah. there's, there's a guy that I follow. Um, his name is Peter Diamandis. And he wrote an amazing book called The Future is Faster Than You Think. Mm -hmm. And he talks about some of the... the um, evolution, if you will, of technology and how, despite what we may see in the media, the world is actually better than it, people believe. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about the advancements of, you know, uh, 3D printing, how they're 3D printing body parts, you know, and stuff like that. And so he says, you know, if you, if you look at the trajectory that we're on as a species, he said the world is actually getting better. And when I, when I see some of these new technologies, I just, I just, I'm just blown away um, by what, what can be done and, and who knows where it's going to go. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, compared to years ago where, you know, uh, you have to make these really large incisions and you have to patients stay in the hospital for weeks at a time just for procedure. You know, now our incisions are really small. You can do a surgery and an incision this small. Uh, I use uh, tubes uh, that we place uh, to uh, do the surgery through a tube or use a microscope inside surgery or a robot to help me just do the uh, most appropriate surgery and the smallest incision. So patients, you know, get out the next day or the same day and you can go home. Whereas years ago, you know, they would stay in the hospital for weeks. So That's, that's amazing. Now, as a spinal doctor, and the scientists, I would say. How does or does spirituality play a part 
in what you do? That's a good question. I, I grew up in a really religious kind of household. My, my dad was a pastor for a number of years and, um, you know, growing up, I always remember kind of going out into the streets of uh, Louisiana with my father and we would hand out food to the homeless and, you know, hand out pamphlets and uh, minister to uh, people. So, you know, just seeing that growing up, that altruistic kind of uh, mentality kind of carried over to, to uh, Madison. But um, yeah, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm not the most spiritual person, but, you know, I, I, I do try to uh, make sure I include that in my um, in my day and before surgery and and, um, and with some of my patients also. Nice. Now, there's another guy that I follow. Uh, his name is Dr. Dr. Jill Dispenza. And I don't know if you ever heard of this guy, but fascinating story that you'll really appreciate. He was a chiropractor and he was in a triathlon and he was on the bike leg of the triathlon. And he's going down this freeway and he comes around this corner and this guy in the truck just smashed right into him. I think he broke like six vertebrae in his back. Mm -hmm. um, the guy was just, I mean, his back was just shattered. So all of the doctors suggested that they put what they do the steel rods or whatever in, in your back to fuse it. Yeah. And he decided that he didn't want to have the surgery. And so the surgeons all said that you'll never walk again. So this guy, being a chiropractor, obviously being a doctor, he said, you know, I believe there is an intelligence that runs through my body. And if I can figure out ways to get that intelligence to heal, I think I can fix my back. And everyone thought he was absolutely insane. Well, long story short, he healed his spine through prayer alone. And now he's a world-renowned healer, if you will. But mm -hmm. he has this process in which he talks about the importance of prayer and how you think and how that impacts the body's ability to heal. And um, I've been following this guy for years and, and I've actually healed some pains with some of his techniques. So I'm curious in terms of meditation, is that something that you practice or believe in, meditation? Yeah, you know, it's anything that's along that conservative route, um, like meditation, um, any type of, uh, um, like yoga, aerobics, th those things, you know, just meditating, you know, um, before your day starts or, you know, that, that stretching, all, all those things are really important. And, um, you know, I have some patients that come in and say they like doing those things. And, uh, you know, I, like I mentioned before, you know, if it's working, you know, continue doing it. But, uh, yeah, I, I uh, try to incorporate that into my uh, kind of daily um, activities, but so you know, life gets really busy, and I haven't had a chance to do that lately. But my wife tries to pull me. She actually just went tonight to go meditate, so uh, I didn't get a chance to go with her. But uh, she tries to uh, encourage me to do that more often. Well, I've been doing it for almost thirty years now, and I'm a huge proponent of 
what it has helped me with. And probably the most important thing is just my peace of mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's really good for, you know, um, not only kind of, like you say, your peace of mind, but also like your blood pressure, your heart rate and, um, you know, other health kind of benefits to it. You know, uh, meditation is uh, something that I really recommend. Yeah. Now, as we wind down, I just want to get your input. I want you to speak to the audience because there's an interesting paradox about black men in society. On one hand, we pretty much epitomize physical fitness when you look at sports. But at the same time, black men lead the nation in most health-related illnesses and death. Mm -hmm. Speak to the men out there to tell the tell them the importance of taking care of our physical bodies. Yeah, it's uh, it's really important. You know, we see it all the time in medicine where patients come in and um, they have really advanced disease or some type of condition that could have easily been prevented uh, with some pre- preventative care. You know, like we talked about earlier, especially men, um, black men we tend to, uh, you know, have this kind of macho kind of attitude about us, like, you know, invincible or, you know, don't want to get things off of our chest. But I think that's the wrong approach to take. You know, hypertension, you know, one of the leading causes of death, um, it's, it, that's why they call it the silent killer. You may not have any symptoms whatsoever. And, you know, your blood pressure can be 190 over 100, which is extremely high and you have no symptoms, and you can have a stroke from this, you can have a heart attack from this, uh, you can, uh, it can affect your eyes, and you can, you know, lead to blindness, kidney disease, so there's lots of different things that can spiral out of process, um, and just like with uh, Chad, uh, Chadwick Boseman, that's his last name, um, yeah. who recently passed away, you know, things like that that uh, is not really talked about in the black community, like colon cancer, Uh, going to get your colonoscopy or, um, you know, just those preventative things like diabetes, which you may not have symptoms, you know, until it's kind of full blown, but um, extremely important to take care of yourself and to, um, you know, if it makes you feel more comfortable having a physician, which I feel like black males or minorities would go to a physician who looks like them then, you know, there's resources online, there's blackdoctor.org that you can, you know, find a black physician in your area. And hopefully there is one, you know, wherever you live at. But uh, I feel like a lot of black males do not uh, go to a physician or go to a doctor because, um, you know, it's not someone they can relate to. But, you know, um, I suggest staying on top of your health, watching your blood pressure, watching what you eat, um, meditating, uh, that physical activity. Um, if you don't have time to go, go to the gym, you know, just walking around your neighborhood, all, all those things are really important. So. Absolutely. And I mean, the basics, if we'll just pay attention to the basic number one, which is our weight, yeah. paying attention to our weight, simple, as you mentioned, blood pressure, cholesterol level, mm-hmm. these these three simple things, if you'll just stay on top of those, it's amazing how the body is perfect, in my opinion. It's perfect. And it always gives us signals. It's like the check engine light on your car, right? Yeah. When something's wrong, that check engine light comes on. 
Well, if your blood pressure is high, that's a check engine light. <laughs> you, need to, you need to get something checked out. You know, if your cholesterol level is high, that's a check engine light. So we have to pay attention to these, these signals, if you will, that our body is telling us so that we can get medical treatment sooner. Too many times we wait until it's too late. So one of the things that I, I try to promote on the show is being in touch with our health and making sure that we pay attention to what our, the signals our bodies are sending us. So with that being said, doctor, please tell everyone how they can reach you if they're interested in finding out more about you and your work. How can they contact you? Yeah, so on social media, I'm on pretty much every platform, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Uh, everything is Antonio Web MD. Um, that's also my website, AntonioWebMD.com. Fantastic. Well, I now want you to give you an opportunity, just any closing thoughts you might have for the audience after our conversation. Yeah. So, you know, anyone out there that's kind of watching this video and, you know, you have a particular goal in mind or, you know, if you want to pay off your student loan or if you want to open up your own business or get into law school, dental school, you know, just use me as inspiration. I, I've went through, I've been through a lot uh, kind of getting to this point and, uh, we didn't really touch on this, but, you know, family members that were in prison, um, family and friends that were killed, kind of growing up in Shreveport. And um, despite all of that, and despite getting rejected from medical school three times, I, you know, stayed persistent and uh, never gave up on my dreams. And, you know, if I can do it and go through everything that I went through, uh, everyone else out there uh, can also, so. Well, again, I, I just really appreciate and admire what you're doing, and you are definitely shattering the stereotypes, man. I, I love what you're doing. I love who you are as a man. Uh, you are definitely an inspiration for me, and I just want to say thank you for shattering the stereotypes and showing what's possible for us, because once again, despite what we see in the media, it is my belief that every Black man is capable of creating an extraordinary life, but he's got to be willing to put forth the effort to make that happen. So Dr. Webb, thank you again so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. This has been another episode of Shatter the Stereotypes and that's all you need to do. Go out there, shatter the stereotypes, make your dreams come true. We'll see you next episode. Take care. Thank you.